on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Then I saw David Copperfield when I was like eight or nine years old, vanish the Statue of Liberty. And he was just amazing back then. I mean, he had everything right. He was the right time, the right era, the right look. So it was one of those things where that's kind of who I looked up to. And then I saw that and I'm like, man, that's kind of cool. Um, let's try that. In Spanish, its name means the meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, lost wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 58 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on board this podcast journey to my favorite city on the planet, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the last episode of the show. I really appreciated your feedback on that particular episode, and it was awesome to hear everyone else's ideas on when and how you all think Las Vegas is going to reopen following the COVID-19 shutdown. If you haven't had an opportunity to listen as of yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 57, Darkest Before the Dawn, or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, here we go. On to the show. I've had a lot of entertainers join me for a conversation on the show. Singers, dancers, actors, impressionists, but this marks the first magician appearance on the podcast. My guest for this episode of the show is Murray Sawchuck, a.k.a. Murray the Magician. Murray's been a Vegas headliner for many years now, having jumped around between the now-defunct Frontier, Planet Hollywood, and the Tropicana, where he currently holds a residency at the Laugh Factory. Murray was kind enough to join me on the podcast to talk about growing up as the son of a railway worker in British Columbia, Canada, when and how he was bitten by the entertainment bug, what it's like living and working in Las Vegas, and how he's managed to grow his YouTube channel to almost 2 million subscribers, and much, much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Murray the Magician. First of all, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you jumping on and uh, and being able to talk for, uh, with me today. Thank you for thanks for having me on, Jeff. I'm really excited to be here. Sorry about my dogs barking in the background; they are still very excited about going for a car ride. Apparently, so <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. No. It's all good. Anyways, how are you? How's up? How's everything up there in Canada? It's uh, you know we're on winter number three right now. Um, it, you know Calgary is is as it is as you know as a as a Canadian yourself, you know how uh, how the weather can be at uh, at this time of the year. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's well, like I said. You know, uh, talking to a few of my friends who are from uh, Alberta and that, you know, July 7th up there, it could snow, you know, and yeah. nobody is shocked. Yeah. <laughs> Except the people in Vancouver. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so I want to talk about your whole, well, I kind of want to talk about you and your life and your journey sure. to Vegas and, and, and everything. You grew up, Burnaby, BC is home for you. I did. Yeah. I was, you know, I was born at the Vancouver General Hospital and, um, 
I was born and raised uh, in Burnaby, which for those who don't know, Vancouver and Burnaby are right beside each other. They're, they're just, you know, two different major cities now. Back when I was growing up, Vancouver was massive and Burnaby was a very small city. Now it's, Burnaby is massive. So yeah, I grew up there and uh, went to school at Burnaby Central High School, graduated and went to Columbia Academy for radio, television and broadcasting, which was in Vancouver, just to get a degree. I always wanted to do magic, but dad and mom always said, have something to back up. Uh, things up and I thought well what can I do to get a degree and stay in the entertainment business you know and I always love radio and I listen to radio all the time and I thought well it's a nice backup plan because I'm still in the biz if I if I couldn't do magic you know and so yeah so did that and then I hung out on the wall and I started traveling the world as a magician and your dad I've heard you mention in other interviews your dad actually worked for the railroad which I think is probably one of the most Canadian things ever other than maybe being a hockey player working for the railroad is about as Canadian as it gets yeah, well, he really had two. Of the, 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 I never thought of that, really, but you're right. Um, but yeah, he did 30, um, 37 years for the railway, CN Rail. He, he, soon as he graduated, and he left school early, but he got his GED, and he started uh, working up in Boston Bar up in British Columbia, a small little train town pretty much uh, near the river, uh, greasing engines you know, and shoveling coal and all that on the real steam engines, you know. And he wanted to be an engineer, uh, but his dad was always worried. So that time, not a lot of safety precautions and a lot of the uh, trains going from Vancouver to where you live across the prairies, they get through those Rockies and they get inside of that mountain and they'd have a lot of avalanches and, um, and things like that. Just because of the fact that, you know, they get a landslide and you, once and people realize the train, I don't care whether you're in the back of the train or the front of the train, it snags the, the track and the whole thing goes, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's not just one car gets knocked out. It takes you down like a snake. So everyone's gone. So he didn't like that so much. So my dad started working internally for CN uh, as a carload supervisor and all that stuff. So, and then also in the evenings, he also worked for the Vancouver Canucks oh, as really? an usher oh, and security. And he worked for them before they were the Canucks. They were called the Blazers before the Canucks. And, uh, and so he did that in the evenings as uh, extra money and a vacation job and all that stuff. So again, about as Canadian as you can possibly get. <laughs> right? <laughs> For real. For did, real. He, did he ever try to convince you to, to do the railroad thing? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, everybody in my family is railway. Everybody. And um, and um, he said, look, you know, get a pension plan. Good job. I can get you in. I could have worked on any of the, the areas, whether it be North Vancouver, Vancouver, Surrey, any of the, the major kind of areas where all my family worked. And I just had this dream of doing magic. And from the age of, you know, seven, eight years old, I got a magic kit from my parents. And then for my uncle and aunt and, you know, long story longer, I was a lifeguard because that was the highest paying job for a teenager in Canada. Uh-huh. You know, we were getting paid between 13 and $16 an hour, which is great money. And you had to go through a lot of courses It's much more strict than being a lifeguard in the United States. And I thought, well, it's a great place to make a lot of money. So I want to make a lot of money to buy more magic props and, and try to do this dream of mine to be an entertainer. You know, and I danced and I, I played accordion and all this music stuff before, but I found a niche. And when I went to these rec centers, I would put a bill, a, a, a thing on the building board asking for a magic show, $50 for half an hour. And uh, I already saw other things there. People who were, who were selling cars and, you know, their, their dog walking services where you rip the phone number off. So I thought, well, I'll make one. And the Commodore 64 computer just came out, and that was way back dating myself. And uh, I used print shop. I'd print one page out because the ink was expensive, and, and, I'll, and I'd go up to uh, – like a, a printing place, Speedy Printers or Kinko's, which in the States they'd call it Kinko's, and uh, print off 100, and I'd just go around to all places and stick those up 
trying to get a job, you know, as a magician. And I did. I started getting jobs at 12, 13, 14 at 50 bucks a pop for doing kids' birthday parties uh, as I still was becoming a lifeguard because I wanted to still make money and, and all that and get through school. So I knew I was going to be in Vancouver for at least till my late teens. And uh, and then once I graduated from the University of Columbia University of Radio and Television, uh, I saw it was a pretty good opportunity to go work uh, and tour on cruise ships and resorts. And I, I was good enough. Wasn't that good, but I was good enough to barely get to that point and start traveling. You know, my, my dad always wanted me to go on the railway because it was a, a job, a pension plan. His dad uh, had a good life, uh, you know, um, from being on the railway, his brother and everybody. And I just thought, well, I know that's there. And it looked fine. I love trains. And I like the, they love their jobs, all of them. Uh, but I kind of wanted to see if I can give it a shot. I always had my head in the sky watching people on TV, you know, uh, and how can they get that job? And why couldn't I do it? You know, and I felt there was no reason why I couldn't do what I wanted to do in life. I don't know where I got that from because we're very a strict family of, you know, working hard and getting a, one job for the rest of your life. But yeah, so I was kind of a bit of a black sheep of the family. So what made you give up the accordion? I wanted a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I'm Ukrainian and Scottish. So uh, my name is Murray Sawchuk. But so Murray is my mother's maiden name. It's her mm -hmm. last name. So she's Scottish. So she, I got that as my first name. And then my last name Sawchuk. And only I'm an only child. Uh, they wanted more kids. Mom just couldn't have any more. And they had me late in the game. And so I still want to make sure her name was tied into my real name. And ironically, now I almost just use Murray. I don't even use Sachuk. But half of me is Ukrainian. So I Ukrainian dance. The accordion is a, a very a national instrument from Poland and Ukraine and Czech and all that. And my dad played it. So that's what I kind of got. I, dad played it. So I thought, well, you kind of mimic your parents a little bit. And uh, But with Ukrainian dancing and the accordion, I thought, man, if I don't make a hard left turn or right, I'm never going to get a girlfriend in my life. <laughs> So I, uh, I had good muscles, though. Those accordions are very heavy when you're a young kid. And so um, I, then I played saxophone and keyboard and all that. But I always, I always took music lessons from, um, you know, school now. They always teach you classical stuff. And I, and I know you need to learn classical stuff. It's the basis for all music and, and all that. But I really wanted to play like, you know, the bands were playing. You know, Brian Setzer and, and all these other people that were coming out of the woodwork then. And I just, I didn't see my music going there because I just didn't have the outlet. I didn't have a garage band. I just didn't have those kind of friends that were kind of that way. And so when I saw Magic, I kind of saw that as an outlet versus music. And I love music, boy. If I could be anything, I would love to be a country music singer. I love country music. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't sing with a damn, but I love country music. And so, um, so I wanted to be in the biz. So uh, Magic was my, my outlet, you know. And who did you sort of emulate when you were looking at, at magic and, and your, your mentors or your, your inspirations, I guess, uh, in the world of magic, who did you, who were you sort of looking at at that time going, you know what? I want to be that guy. You know, it's funny. It wasn't a magician. You know, I grew up watching a lot of old acts to my parents. You know, my dad had me when he was 43. My mom was in her mid thirties. And so I saw a lot of older programming. I saw the Lawrence Welk show. I watched. A Lucille Ball, which I think everybody did, but I was watching Lucille Ball when their second run of Lucy was out in the real time when they were airing. And I watched a lot of these older acts my parents grew up on, Liberace and stuff. And so I, one of my favorite acts in the world, I would mimic them, would be Fred Astaire. And I love Danny Kaye and Sammy Davis and Frank and all those guys. And people always had that Rat Pack kind of thing. Of course, they were cool and they were like, but I was a huge fan of um, 
of Fred Astaire and Danny Kaye. And because they were great dancers, but what they did on screen to me was magic. It wasn't a box and a trick or cutting somebody in half, but it was, you know, I just couldn't believe somebody could dance like that. I didn't know a body could move like that. I didn't know somebody was that talented to look like you're on ice when you're in, in a gymnasium or a ballroom or a cruise ship deck or wherever the videos or you know, movies are being filmed. So that's when I really got the entertainment bug. And then I saw David Copperfield when I was like eight or nine years old, Vanish the Statue of Liberty. And he was just amazing back then. I mean, he had everything right. He was the right time, the right era, the right look. The tricks were unbelievable. You know, he, he followed Doug Henning, who's actually a Canadian magician, uh, very famous at the time. And so it was one of those things where, um, you know, that that's kind of who I looked up to. And then I saw that, and I'm like, man, that's kind of cool. Um, let, let's try that. So I started getting magic tricks and that, and I realized, well, I'd already danced on stage since at the age of five. I played music, you know, the accordion, the keyboard. So I, I did talent shows. You know, it's funny, ironically, back in Burnaby, I do all sorts of talent shows. And there was a young kid who always won the singing category, and I'd always win the variety category. And we were in two different school districts. We didn't hang out a lot, but doing uh, competitions, we'd run into each other. And our last show together was in 2002. We got brought back to Burnaby as guys that are somewhat successful to do this cavalcade of stars thing. And um, I opened the first half, and he opened the second half, and it's Michael Bublé. Oh, and of all people, can you believe that? And we were standing there going, wow, I can't believe we're doing this. So, yeah, but they called us, and they were nice enough, and we were 12 years old to put us on this show. It was basically pushing youth forward in the arts, which Burnaby and Vancouver, I know Canada, all Canada is really big on it. And, um, you know, so we did. He came in with a three-piece band. I came, I flew back from Vegas, and he was in Woodland Hills putting his first album together with David Foster. And uh, he was saying, uh, is is first album is going to air 2003 valentine's day and i said oh man i hope that works out. yeah i hope it works out too because right now i'm uh, getting coffee and i'm wiping david foster's ass right now i hope this works out for me and then well look what happened to him, you know isn't that great you know you can't and i, and I still have the playbill i just found the playbill of us uh in the playbill together i should post that today on one of my throwbacks but of him and i in uh performing together but yeah so so it's a cool line of getting to where we were and i was and then, uh, and then from there, I just thought, well, things are working. I'm making money off this thing, and uh, let's keep it, keep it, keep it going. I didn't think I could ever be Fred Astaire because he was legendary, but I thought, well, these guys did it. You know, he trained ballet, became one of the top dancers in the world, and movie movie stars. So why not give it a shot? How weird is it that um, Copperfield was one of the guys that you sort of you watched and you kind of went, wow, this is it, and now you're working in the same city as him performing at the, the hotel across the street from him. Like how, how mind blowing is that for you? You know, I try not to have too many surreal moments because I really, <clears throat> I live my life. Um, I, I'm always thankful. So grateful, but I'm always looking five years ahead. Like whenever I hit something, I go, man, I wish I was there five years ago. You know, you see people like Justin Bieber, Britney Spears, all these people who make it when they're 16, 18, you go, man, what happened? You know? And I realized it doesn't matter in life. Some people, um, make it when they're 80. Some people make it when they're seven. Some people make it when they're 35. And it all becomes when you really get into your own, your looks, your style, your charisma, your talent. And that goes for anything, whether you're inventing a computer like Bill Gates, or you're being a doctor, or you're inventing a new heart valve or an entertainer, you know, and, and it is a surreal. I drove to work one day and, I, and you're right, the Tropicana is across the street from the MGM Grand where he plays and he has his face across it. And I had one of the billboards on property at the Trop. So his face and billboard is behind mine and i took a picture years ago and i have it somewhere that it was just a surreal moment that what are the chances he's from new york city 
He's about 20 years older than I am, 20 or 30 years older. I'm from Vancouver. And somehow we're performing the Las Vegas Strip across the street from each other, like one in a million, if not more. Like I don't like, and people ask, well, how did you end up right there? And I don't have an answer. Like, I don't know how I ended up right here today, sitting in my kitchen, you know, in Las Vegas, driving to work uh, with my own show on the Las Vegas Strip from Burnaby. You know what I mean? I think of the fact, I think maybe the reason is because I just never took no for an answer. I took risks. And I just believed in myself. And I, you know, I, nine out of 10 things, I failed and fell on my ass. I mean, that's that's the key to being successful. Nobody ever just wakes up and nails it. I, I, I don't know anybody that's ever done that. But um, but it looks that way on Facebook and Instagram, you know, um, nowadays. But um, it is pretty surreal when you, when you do see that, you know. And yes, he's a legend. And he's the top of the game. And he is the Fred Astaire of the magic world. But it's pretty cool working across the street to the guy you kind of watched on TV going, I wonder if I could do a magic trick. Mm-hmm. One of the names that's come up in, in past interviews and, and past appearances of videos of yours that I've seen is uh, Mr. Electric. Yeah. This is a guy who is, who is one of your, your big mentors. And I've seen some of the videos that you've done with him. How cool is that to be able to, to work with him and, and perform for him and have him perform for you. And it was really, really neat to watch you on uh pen and teller fool us doing one of his tricks for them. How cool is all that for you? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, once again, I'm the type of person to take an opportunity and run with it, you know, and and um, and I think a lot of people miss out on that because they second guess themselves. They're nervous. They're shy, ashamed, whatever you want to call it. And they miss so many great opportunities. And I, I never want to go to my grave thinking, man, I wish I would have done that at 45, 60, 30, 20. And Marvin Roy, uh, his real name is Marvin Roy. He went by the stage of Mr. Electric. I met him when I was 16. I went to a magic convention. We drove down from Vancouver, Canada. And I was part of the Vancouver Magic Circle, which I still am, which is the magic club in Vancouver, uh, quite a big magic club. Went down with a bunch of magicians to Brush Prairie, Washington, which is basically Vancouver, Washington, which is about three hours across the border, um, past Seattle. And uh, they were the big headliners that year at the magic convention. I met them. I saw this gorgeous looking couple in the lobby. I mean, dressed to the nines, dressed like they walked out of a 1930s movie. And they were old school Hollywood. That's something I, I've kind of learned when I walk into any space. I'm always dressed to the nines. I always look at, meanwhile, I'm sitting here talking to you in a shirt I had on yesterday and a hat, but, <laughs> but anyway, but you know, I'm really particular about that stuff, but, um, but I started talking to them and they were still on the top of their game. They were probably in their fifties, sixties, and they were still playing all over the world. And they played the Lido in France for years and Ed Sullivan. And we just took a liking to each other and they really liked helping out younger people. And I said, well, I'm working on this new idea of an act with compact discs and CDs. I worked at the Hudson's Bay company, you know, for years in the cassette tape uh, uh, stereo section where they sold Walkmans and uh, cassette tapes. And the toy section was kind of the area that I was at Metrotown in Burnaby. And, um, and uh, the CDs came in, it was just one row of CDs. They were all like what, $40 a piece. And everyone couldn't believe when you played it, it sounded like you had bare naked ladies in your living room, you know, and all that or tragically hip or whoever was listening to whatever. And we got some that were returned that were scratched. And I just kind of hung on to one once. And I vanished it like a coin because they're round. They're huge, but they're round. So I vanished it like I had vanished a small quarter to a worker of mine from a distance. And I blew him away. And um, I said, you've got to be kidding me. And I had the thing behind my hand, but you just couldn't see it the way I held it. And I thought, oh, here we go. That's it. So I started creating this original idea because Mr. Elector said, you got to be different. You know, he said, for five years of your life, you're cute, you're young, you're good. And you can buy tricks from a magic shop, 
and you'll work because you're cute and you're young and you're ahead of your time. Uh, or you, so you can spend a year working on that and work for five because you're young and cute. It says, but after that, that those tricks probably aren't going to be as, as great because they're around. Everyone's doing them. But if you spent five years on a cool idea that no one can touch it, you invented, you'll work for 50. And that really resonated with me, having an original look, a brand, an idea, a style, because that's how you will last forever in this business. You know, and that taught me a lot when I was a teenager. So from then on, I just always tried to be different, original, and creative. And even a lot of, a lot of my ideas aren't my own, but I've taken a, an old principle and twisted it just enough to make it look, uh, you know, different enough for my style and brand. So, um, so he was uh, very influential. And, you know, now, dear friends, he, he just celebrated his 94, uh, 95th birthday, uh, April 1st in Palm Springs. He's still alive. He's now in assisted living place because his brain's still there. He's still on. He knows about YouTube and he wishes YouTube was around in his era. He's very quick, but the body's getting old, you know? And so he's got a cane and a walker now, but he's still right on the ball. I talk to him probably every five or six weeks. You know, I was down in Palm Springs just as this whole thing hit with the quarantine and I wanted to go see him, but they just closed all the, the facilities because of, you know, being younger, we could be carrying the Corona and give it to somebody and it could take down a whole, the whole, um, senior living center, you know, which we know now. And so it was really frustrating. We couldn't see him, but that could never happen. So, so I'll see him when this is all done, you know, but he's lived a hell of a life, you know, and he was very nice to take me under his wing, him and his wife, Carol and Carol's been gone for about 15 years now. And they just taught me to be original and different and it's harder. It's sure a lot easier copying somebody. Um, but, but you get a lot further and you get your own show on the strip and you get a YouTube channel and you get people like you talking to me if you're different, I think, you know? Well, and as you say, I mean, you, you kind of, you started making the rounds, you toured the circuit, you, you did the cruise ship thing, you went all around the world. It was, it was a, a relatively long road to Vegas for you, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Nothing was overnight. You know, um, I played Vegas in 2002, uh, when I moved from Florida to here, cause I went to Florida for five years and, uh, it was good, but, it, but, uh, I wasn't really ready for Vegas. I had the opportunity. I took it and it was, it went fine, but it did. A, I had a four month run the frontier but then I went back to touring because there's a lot more money there. And, but I always kept my eye on Vegas. And I was a guest star in a show called The Crazy Horse from Paris, uh, which was uh, the name in Vegas was called La Femme, which is, means woman in French, as we know, in Canada. And so I did that show for a while, played guest spots in various shows in Vegas. So I lived here. And then I got the opportunity back after America's Got Talent to have my own show, The Tropicana, in 2012. I did three years there. I bumped the Planet Hollywood for three years. Now I'm back, of course at the Tropicana. And then just about two and a half months ago, I just signed on to another show, a very dear friend of mine, Anita Mann, who's one of the top choreographers, producers in the world of dance. She worked with everybody from Elvis Presley to Cher to everybody. She owns and has a show called Fantasy at the Luxor. It's been there for 20 years now, just over 20. And uh, she invited me to be the guest comedy star in their show. And uh, it's right across the street. So I just signed up to do that about two months ago. And I did a month in it before all this hit. So we're all excited to go back I think uh, beginning of June, we're going to go back to that show as well, you know, but, uh, but so it's been fun. It's, I've been very lucky, but once again, it's, it's a lot of hard work and it's never giving up. And sometimes you do have to take two steps back to make one forward, you know, but, but people got to remember that one step forward is a big step sometimes, you know, but you got to go a couple back sometimes, you know, it's like a cul-de-sac. Sometimes you got to turn around and make go one more street down to get around, you know, life in Vegas. When you first, I mean, other entertainers and other people that I've talked to, They've all said they kind of had this preconceived notion about what life in Vegas was like before they actually moved there. 
did you kind of, I don't want to say suffer from that because that sounds weird, but was that sort of in your brain? Like once you got settled in, it's like, whoa, this is like a totally different experience from what I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, when you come to Vegas, you come here for two to four days, you know, and you uh, probably stay in the strip, which is about a mile long, you know, a mile and a half long. You probably don't leave it too far. You go to the pool, go to a club, go have a gamble, walk down the street, see some fountains, uh, you know, and, and a show or two. And you go home and you go, oh my God, how can we live? How can people live in this environment? You go home drunk, hungover, whatever you do. And uh, then you realize that um, when you live here, you probably go down the strip. Uh, well, I work on the strip like most of my friends. So we go down there, but we go down the back ways. We go in the back of the hotel. You know, we go cut through all these hallways and Jander's closets and EDRs, which are the uh, the cafeterias there. And we go into our, do our show. And then as soon as it's done, we hang up the caution, go at the back and we drive home. We probably go have a beer about a block away from our house for two bucks, you know, not 10 bucks on the strip. And, uh, and that's really the way you live. There's Greek festivals here. There's Italian festivals here. There's great parks. There's everything. I mean, yeah, in the 80s, it wasn't like that. You know, the 80s was a really, really a tourist town. And that's what you came here for. Uh, but now people are coming here who are plumbers and doctors and lawyers. And it's, you know, it's over a million people that are locals now. And uh, it's really a city now. You know, we got a football arena being built to be ready in October uh, with the Raiders. And we got, a, you know, obviously a hockey team now, which I see your jerseys back. They're very nice representing. Thank you. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it's a real big city now and it's kind of exciting. But, but that's the biggest shock when people come stay at my house who I know who are entertainers. You know, I'll sit out here in the patio have my coffee with uh, my newspaper and my dogs. And um, and when you sit in my backyard, you'd almost think you were sitting in Burnaby. I got a little pond with a, a little waterfall and my trees. You'd never know you're in Vegas. You know, and that's, I purposely have done that. You know, I'm 20 minutes from the strip because because uh, I, I want to feel cozy mm -hmm. and comfortable. And I like greenery, which in Vegas is a little thing uh, that's hard to come by at times. Yeah. Uh, and others have mentioned to me as well about how supportive the entertainment community is of each other and how it's so different from other cities like LA or New York, like where people will, you know, they, they they'll stab you in the back over a gig. Whereas in Vegas, it seems like everybody is really, really working to help each other out. They are, you know what I mean? But I don't care what business you're in, Jeff, as you know, whether it be radio, dance, doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, uh, there, it, it is a very support community. But that after you've proven yourself, you know, if you're a good act, you're talented, you're not a pain in the ass, um, it's a great town. You know what I mean? If you're a diva, pain in the ass, think you're higher than God, then uh, there's no time for that either. You know what I mean? Uh, because it is a small village. Honest to God, I always call it the village because um, everyone knows everybody if you're in. So when I always tell people when they come here and they're an act um, or they come from somewhere, they're trying to be somebody, it's just be nice. You know, don't be amazing. Don't be crappy. Be nice. And that's sometimes the hardest thing for people to be is nice. It's a very even keeled thing to be. Uh, but I just, I, I even say that to people in my life, just be nice. You know, don't be crazy and don't be amazing. Just be nice. And um, you'll get through this town. People will like you. And it's a very supportive community. Um, but, you, you know, when you come in, you got to, you know, you got to prove your worth. Kind of like going to high school or changing schools. You don't want to be that eager the first week because people think, who is this person? And you just kind of prove yourself over the months at school to be a good person a good student a nice uh, you know kid at school or whatever and then people start liking you just because you're real and down to earth you're not trying to be anybody you know and i think that's that's something just every everyday life i think you know something else that i've i've noticed in the time that i go and and the amount of time that i've spent there and with the the people that i've sort of uh 
been led into their circle is how charitable of a city it is and how giving the community is. Did that kind of surprise you a little bit at first when you first got to Vegas as to how giving that, that entertainment community was? I don't know if it surprised me, but it was really welcoming, you know, um, because, you know, yeah, I guess it was a surprise in the sense of that, that everyone does like to help each other because we're all in this together, especially now, mm-hmm. you know, I've been, I've been doing a lot of online shows, uh, which I really enjoyed actually. And again, thanks for having me on your show. And, um, uh, it's it's really nice to see because we're all in the same boat, you know. And and the thing is, it's not even entertainers that are in the same. There's restaurants, there's liquor stores, there's party supply houses, there's everything um, that uh, that is funny how this whole thing is a domino effect, you know. Like when we heard the shows were closing, and then when we went, well, when we first heard Broadway close, we thought, oh my goodness, that's that's not good mm-hmm. in New York. You think that they would keep that open, and then when that happened, I thought, oh, here it comes. And then we thought, man, you know, not the time to be an entertainer. And then you think, well, it's just us. And then all of a sudden you see that ripple effect uh, when you shut down the big crowds of people and it affects everybody from restaurants to, um, to everything. It's not just entertainment, you know, and, and you forget how it, and it's, I've just, it's interesting to see that ripple effect. It's like a tsunami coming. You see a little wave against the ocean and then all of a sudden there's massive things behind it that you didn't realize is rolling in from Japan across the ocean for the last week right. uh, underneath all that. And then it hits your, hits your world, you know, and that's kind of what happened in this case. And so, yeah, we all are, we're all in it together. You know what I mean? And, um, and it's one of those things where now there's a lot of charitable things going on. We're helping out other entertainers and we're also doing stuff like this, you know, we're doing free entertainment for people as well because we love what we do. When you're a true entertainer and you have a passion, whether you have money or not, um, you survive, you know, and we love what we do. It's almost like a drug. So uh, it's, it's kind of made a lot of people, I think, it's helped people because people watch us and it kind of takes their mind off things for an hour. It also helps us because we get to have our outlet of entertaining, getting the attention, sharing what we know because that's kind of all we know how to do. Yeah. And and it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I watched your, your Facebook live show that you did just this last weekend Yeah, and it was like the full Murray experience, really. <laughs> sure. I tried that. You know, I tried, it's funny you mentioned that because before we, I wasn't going to do one because I didn't know how long this was going to last. And, um, and you know, I do videos every week on my YouTube and my Facebook already. So it wasn't, it wasn't really an outlet that I, thought, well, do, how am I going to do this? And in my home, you know, I have a lot of memorabilia and I kind of got a cool area to film stuff in, in my dining room with a box office sign. And that box office sign is Debbie Reynolds actually. And uh, that was in that uh, shoot. And um, I thought, you know, I let two weeks go and I started looking at other people's live feeds and I thought they were crap. Um, they're sitting there in front of a TV tray doing a card trick, you know, or they're, they're talking about, you know, why the grass grows. I'm thinking you're not that famous. You know what I mean? You're not the Pope. You're not Johnny Carson. You know what I mean? Like, um, do something. You're not that great. You know, you have fans, but get on with it, right? And so I talked to lefties, you know, my guest act, best friend, and all that stuff. And I said, What do you think we're doing one of these live shows? Everyone and their mother's doing it now. I said, But you know, on Facebook I have almost half a million followers and you know on youtube of course i have over a million or so and i said you know there might be some traction it might be fun for us to do and it gives us something to do uh, it's one of those things where i want to do it right and i said well let's do a real show let's put some effort in you know i got lights for shooting and i'll set up lights so you, they all can see it right 
let's dress the part and let's just do a real show because this is what we do every day of our lives. You know, now most of my equipment is at the Tropicana as well as at Luxor. Uh, and so I had to go through my garage and find stuff I hadn't used for a while. And that was kind of fun though, because it was new for me to do. And then I said, let's do a teach a trick thing because on so many of my videos online that I post uh, that are regular, you know, videos that go up are teacher tricks and people really like that. And I thought, well, with kids being home, um, this is a great thing for people to make and do at home with stuff around the house. You know, that's how I learned, you know, I didn't have a lot of money starting out. So I just used stuff in the cupboards that my mom and dad had to make a trick. Mm -hmm. So we realized that became quite a thing as well. So it turned out really good. We, I just checked today. It's only been a couple of days and we, we've had like 33,000 views of that hour. And then we bumped to YouTube and did that as well. And I said, crumb. I said, we've got, I told lefty. I said, we have more people seeing my show sitting at home, not driving to the theater, than driving to the theater every day, every week. I said, it's unbelievable. I said, maybe this is the new norm. And <laughs> and I said, they really like the teacher trick. We had a lot of photographs of people's kids in front of the television. They were streaming our show to doing the tricks that we were teaching. And I said, you know what? Why don't we do the whole teacher trick thing in a couple of weeks? I didn't want to make it a regular thing. I don't want to be that accessible in that sense. Um, I said, well, why don't we do like a teacher trick thing the next time we do this? Like in two weeks, we'll, we'll have a list of stuff you need. And then um, we'll just do an hour. We'll do a couple tricks. But let's make it an hour of, so we are. So uh, April 25th and 26th, um, same time, 6 and 9, 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard. We're going to do a whole teacher trick thing at my house. Again, sitting down, same kind of formula, um, but not as many tricks. And we're going to do a whole thing. We make stuff with everybody and they can talk back to us. And if there's any problems, they can't get a trick or figure it out. Um, we're going to help them out with that. And, and But everything I do will be something that by the end, everyone should be able to do the trick. They're very simple and fun. So, so there you go. You know, it's kind of neat. That's so cool. I love that you're doing that. And, and you touched on your, uh, your YouTube and your, your Facebook following and the number of subscribers that you've gotten your YouTube is is massive i mean as you say it's it what 1.7 1.8 million subscribers on there yeah something like that yeah it'd be crazy yeah i mean this is going to sound like one of those weird questions but how does that happen i mean what have you done to really set yourself apart from other people that are are doing youtube channels where they've got you know 15 subscribers as opposed to your 1.7 mil how have what have you done to really make that happen you basically have to have a car crash. You know what I mean? We all <laughs> like car crashes. You know what I mean? We all, we don't like car crashes, but, but we all stop and see what's happening. Um, you know, any, anything that's dramatic as a human being, somehow we're drawn to love it or hate it. We are, it's in our makeup. Right. So, um, I partnered with a dear friend of mine now named Seth Leach and he is a big YouTuber. He started doing it when he was a teenager. And he's half my age and he liked my stuff. He was a fan. He said, Mer, I love your stuff, but no one's watching it. I, I can make it go viral. And so he basically took my classic tricks and put a new twist on them. You know, let's go prank a security guard. Let's go prank a cop, which I don't recommend anyone doing. But, but it was enough <laughs> to get attention, but yet still do a trick you'd see me do on a theater stage. But if I had a nice theater stage and it was set up really nice, and I did it, it would get no traction because it's just another trick on the screen. But now that I'm following a cop or I'm handcuffing a cop to something or I'm getting a speeding ticket or I'm talking on my phone and the phone's actually a cookie cell phone, not a real phone, um, it, it causes interest, you know? So that's kind of how that all started and that's really how we ramped up. And the idea is to put something online that it would stop people 
uh, from doing what they're doing to watch it. You know, and that's the best analogy I can say. I don't care what it is. Like, you know, I don't know, say you're a singer. Um, don't sing in your living room. Why don't you go down the mall and on that second uh, escalator going down, start saying Pavarotti and get a wide shot of that. It's going to echo in the mall. People are going to turn around and that's what we want to see. We want to see that ridiculous shot of you singing in a mall, which is ridiculous, but with that echo and people going, is this guy lost it? You know, but that's a cool moment. And we'll watch that because we're like, I can't believe that guy did that or that woman did that, you know? And, it, and so the same song, same vocals, but now there's an interesting element to it going, did, did they really do that? You know, and, and that's kind of, you just got to find that little niche that kind of does it. You know what I mean? It's interesting. That's, that's kind of a, a recurring theme for you through everything that we've talked about here today. You've said, you know, even all, all the way back to the Mr. Electric days and, and saying, find a, a, something that is unique to you as opposed to trying to follow what other people are doing. 100%. It's very important. And I, I said this to somebody recently. I said, here's the greatest thing uh, about everybody. I don't care who it is. No one's you. No one's you. Even twins, they look alike, but they have different personalities and feelings, different thoughts, but no one's you and just accentuate you. I mean, yeah, when you're starting out in the business, in any business, you emulate somebody because you want to be somebody. You kind of copy a little bit. We all do, you know, because you don't know what you like and what you want. Even as kids, we mimic our parents, don't we? What they do, what they say. But then there comes a point where you're going, okay, I've got a skill, I've got a talent, or I've got enough of this. So now how do I become me? You know, how do I, how do I sell this? And I told people when I took acting classes in LA for three years, the first thing they did in one of my classes, I'll never forget. And I always tell people is if you ever want to get into the business, I don't care if it's radio, acting, uh, anything, usually entertainment wise, have somebody stand in front of the class the first day because nobody knows anybody, right? That's the idea. If you know somebody, it doesn't work as well. And you stand there and everyone, and you don't tell them your name, you don't tell them where you're from, nothing. You just stand there and everyone writes on a piece of paper, are you rich or are you poor? What three occupations would this person do? Are they healthy? Do they work out? Are they, do they live in a big house, a trailer, or a tent? All these things. And it's amazing how many people will write the true fact of what you look like and who you should be or what you are and what you really are. And people got to realize when you walk into a room, I don't care who it is, we all judge. People can say, ah, oh, we don't judge people. Bullshit. We do. When somebody walks on stage, if I watch Cher or if I watch Bruno Mars or George Strait or whoever it is, we're judging. Is the hat too big? Is the short two pants? Are, they, are, the, are the pants too short? Are they fat? Are they thin? Are they losing hair, gaining hair? Um, but that sets up for the brand and who you're trying to sell. And then if you can emulate more of that, now you become Howard Stern, Liberace, Murray the Magician, you know, Michael Bublé. Carrot top. You you emulate what people, and then you make. And if you're, you know, if you make fun of it too, it helps because you accept it. And you know, when somebody looks at me, they go, "Oh, I could be a skateboarder, maybe a mountain biker, um, doctor, lawyer." Hell no. You know, what I mean, maybe I think I can. Well, yeah, if I slick my hair back and take my glasses off and wear a pinstripe suit, very possible. But that's not what I'm selling. You know, could he be a scientist? Yes, possible. Is he rich? Is he poor? I don't know. He probably, you know, he could be a drug dealer. I don't know. He kind of has that look. You know what I mean? He could be sleeping on a friend's couch. I don't know. You know, and then once you see people see that and go, well, that's what I, that's what people look at me at. It could be gay. It could be straight. Yeah, possible. But once you know what most people see you as, now you can start honing in on who you really want to be and how you sell yourself. And if that's not kind of the way, then change yourself to sell yourself. You know, I got a lot of people who think they're Copperfield and they're 450 pounds. Nothing wrong with being 450 pounds, but that's a different character. 
You know, you're not wearing an Armani suit gliding through the streets of New York City on a scooter trying to be cool. Right. It's very hard. You're, it's very hard to be cool like that. You're going to be probably really funny, but you can accept the funny. Yeah. That could be an amazing video. That would be brilliant. But sometimes people can't always accept the situation. It really holds them back a lot on being a star or being um, much more popular than they really are. Because I think once you succumb to that, uh, you can be very successful. You know. You've landed some pretty cool TV work too um, in Vegas. The one of the big things for you, of course, Pawn Stars. You're you're quite involved with that. You're their yeah. their magic expert. Yeah. How did that kind of all come to be? Well, I did America's Got Talent 2010. Pawn Stars, I believe, started around 2008 or nine. They were just starting out. Really, quite a big hit on TV. And I came off AGT with a semifinalist, so I got a lot of exposure. Like 22 million viewers that season which was the most they've ever had so it was good timing on my part i knew the producer in vegas and they're out of vegas and a guy named adam steck he owns spy entertainment he produces five seven different shows here in vegas dear friend of mine he says uh pawn stars need a host they're going on the road you'd be perfect you want to give it a shot meet rick yeah sure you know I, and i watched pawn stars a little bit oh wow i'm the opposite of them they got the tattoos and they look like bikers and i'm they look like a hairdresser and uh so I uh, went for the meeting and I left. And I remember um, Rick saying to, to Adam, going, wow, he says, you're telling me we're going to tour with this fairy on the road? They thought I was gay in the whole bit. And I thought, oh, that's funny. And I said, well, whatever works, you know. But Adam, who produced it, loved the idea that I was a bit more stylish than this. And they were this. It was an opposite kind of thing. And then we're on the road for six months. They figured out pretty quickly that I was not gay. And uh, and they realized why I went to bed a lot earlier most nights because I wasn't hanging out with them. So because <laughs> it's you're on the road, right? And I was single, and I had a great. We all had a great time, and we just hit it off, and we became really good friends. At this day, we're very very dear friends. And then he said, about a year into it, going, you know, we got to get you on the show. Like, you know, how come you haven't been on the show yet? I said, well, I'd love to be on the show, you know. And um, so my manager gina rugolo she said well Mer, we don't really want you to go on as a vendor like pawning something that looks like you'll need the money and that's not what we want to share you really try to get you on as a expert of some sort so i had a buddy of mine who wanted to get rid of some houdini handcuffs um and they're really his and all that and so i said to him hey man would you be willing to bring these on pawn stars and i'll come on as an expert and it'd be a really cool thing and and they've never had anything houdini related and that and he said, man, I'm down for that. It's great. I'll you know, put you up in a hotel if you want to come to Vegas and let's shoot this. And, you know, and I, I pitched it to Rick and Chum Lee and their producer. Like, oh, my God, it's brilliant. Eugene is huge. We'd love that. And that was our first episode. I've done over, I think, 40 episodes now, over 12 years on the show. And it's uh, seen in like 160 countries or something. So it's it's pretty cool. I guess it's just, and we're, and we're good. And the nice thing is we're actually really dear friends. We have cigar nights every Every, you know, eight weeks, the, you know, four or five guys who just sit around the backyard and bullshit, you know, and, um, and he's really who he is. I mean, they really, all of them are really who they are. They're really pawn shop people. They didn't buy the store to have the TV show. They didn't buy characters or anything. They're really who they are. And they really buy the stuff and sell the stuff. It's, you know, it's pretty, pretty true to what they do, you know, like American pickers. They're pretty bang on too. Mm -hmm. And then I spotted you this last season season three of glow oh yeah which you landed in and and it was funny because i'm watching the this i mean i'm a i'm a wrestling fan a, a old school wrestling fan and and really have enjoyed that show and i'm a fan of mark Marin and 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 all of those guys and i'm watching the show and i'm like that's murray 
Murray's in the show. And, and so how did that all sort of, were, were they looking for someone specific like yourself or was it, how did it all sort of come to be there? Well, my, one of my agents is Terry Mandel. She owns abstract talent. Terry Mandel is Howie Mandel's wife and, um, they're out of LA, of course. And she phones me up, uh, along with her partner and say, Hey, Murray, I got an addition for you. Looking for a magician for this show called glow. I'd never heard of the show before. And, but my girlfriend, Danny had, she's like, I said, hey, I got this edition. I got to go into town tomorrow for, I flew in because I had my show still too. So I flew in early for an edition and then I had to go back to my show at five o'clock the prop. So, so I'm going in for this edition. I want some magician, but they want a traditional magician. So I better wear a black suit, you know, bow tie, cummerbund, you know, keep the hair and glasses. That never changes. But I said, I got to, and I put it. So I saw the script and there's three, four tricks in it. And they said, um, you know, you can do them individually just so we can see you can do the tricks. And I thought, no, I'm going to figure out where I can walk into that edition and do all three of those tricks, one into the other, which isn't always easy because you got to have all this crap on your jacket and sneak it away and hide it. And But I thought, well, if you're a real magician, which I've done all my life, I should be able to just do the, do the lines and then just have this stuff happen. And I, like a normal show, I only had overnight to figure this stuff out, you know, produce a business card and a flash of fire and vanish at 20 and make it appear in an orange and all this stuff all at once so i um i i i worked on this and i landed in la and i only had to do is i had to go buy a knife from uh, the ralph's there ralph's is like the safeway of uh, la and um because i couldn't fly with a knife i need a knife to cut this damn orange open with this 20 dollar bill in it. and so i had my uber driver stop for a knife and she thought that was strange and um <laughs> And we got talking, and I so I had to tell him what I was doing. He said, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in entertainment, too. I said, what do you mean? He said, I play with Brian Setzer. I'm one of his guitar. I said, no way. But he did Uber on the side when they're off the road. I said, good for you, man. So we hit it off, and he became a friend. He actually came to see my show in Vegas. But anyways, I go to this edition. I walk in, and uh, the two casting people are there. It was in uh, North Hollywood there. And um, I walked in, and away we went. I, I flew. I flew in. In character. I didn't bring a costume either, because I was just hopping a flight. I landed. I did the edition, and I literally went back to LAX and flew back to Vegas. So I dressed the part, which I look ridiculous on a plane when I'm really fully dressed with the hair up because it's kind of hard to hide, right? But it was what it was. So I landed, I walked in and I did it. Every, the tricks worked. I was shocked myself. And I remember the lines and I'm not very good at memory lines. It's my worst thing. I'm so used to saying it my own way because I, I do my own show every day. And I just got it right, I guess. And the cast directors were blown away. They were like, that's unbelievable. Like everything you touched just happened. Like that was like, we could have shot that on the show. I said, Oh, I said, yeah, well I do magic for a little. So no, we know who you are. That's why you're here. I said, okay. I said, but okay. Well, I said, well, are you available for the shoot dates? And we're going to shoot end of, maybe once at the end of December and then the other two in January. And I said, yeah, of course I'm available. And I didn't know much about the show. I knew my girlfriend liked it. I knew it did pretty good on uh, Netflix. And I just was happy because it was TV. And then I got, I hopped back in the Uber, called uh, my mom, my girlfriend, and I said, hey, I think I, I did really well. I said, well, you never know. It might not be the look. You know, half the time it's the look for these things. And uh, I literally was in the TSA line at LAX. I got a phone call from my uh, agent, Terry. She calls me and said, hey, Mer, uh, congratulations. You killed it. They loved you. You walked in and that was it. They shut the, the additions down. And if you can do it, they want to know right, right away before they look at any more people. Can you do it? I said, that's amazing. I'd love to do that. And so I said, yes, flew back home. And, um, and then I, we've, I, you know, well, four weeks later, we shot it in January because I did the edition in December uh, just for Christmas before basically LA shuts down for three weeks. Mm. So it was a cool way going into 2019, you know, cause that was in 2018. 
And we shot it and uh, we had a great time. I was nervous because these are real actors, you know, real stars. Oh, and then I went home and re- I watched the show and I, holy crow, that's a real show. You know, and then I realized they had like nine Emmys nominated for or something. I'm like, wow. I said, I better get my shit together. And so, um, so then I go back to shoot. I had four days of shooting on the set and I was nervous, boy, you know, cause I'm not an actor, you know, I can act, but I'm not an actor. And my biggest problem was, was screwing up a scene. I didn't want to be the weak link, you know, and I realized I probably am because all these people work together every day. They know each other. I'm a day player or a guest star. And, you know, the problem with my situation is I don't not only have to remember the lines, which I'm not very good at. I got to pull a rabbit out of my ass. You know what I mean? Like at the same time. <laughs> and, and, and there was like five tricks in the sequence and I scheduled it. Even the director was like, do you have to stop the stars? No, no, because I, I, I built it so I could do the whole scene with all this stuff. Because that's what I do for a living. Why can't I figure this out? I, you know? And so I did it. And the first take we did, uh, boy, I, n- I nailed everything. I shocked myself. I was breathing heavy. I wanted to crap a load. And I was like, I think I did it. I think I remember the lines. And one of the other actors missed a line. I forget. I think it was Mark or, or Chris or one of those guys. And I was like, oh, God, that wasn't me. Thank God. And then I realized we must have done the take 35 times. And... I realized memorizing lines, doing it 30 times is easy. By the sixth time, you can't not forget. Because first of all, you're having a conversation and your answer can only be one or the other. Like mm-hmm. if you really listen to an actor. And I've acted all my life, but I've never really acted. Like I haven't done Friends for 10 years, right? I do guest starring roles once a year. So, you, you know, it's like going to kindergarten once a year. Again, you're like, oh my God, new people. And so, um, so we had a good time. We shot it and they seemed to be very happy with it. And then, yeah, now it's one of those things locked in, I guess, pop icon history because I get people emailing me all the time going, oh, my God, I had no idea. And I and before that, my my biggest role before that kind of was on Rio 911 on Comedy Central way back in the day. How many takes of that scene did you, did you have to do? Probably 32, 34, <laughs> maybe no more than 40. And the reason why is because, you know, anyone who doesn't know TV, they got to get this shot. So they get the shot of the kitchen and this side of the table, you know, and then now they shoot behind me and they're shooting this way. So they got, and then we're actually in a kitchen, like what I'm sitting in now, but this wall behind me, they want to shoot over our shoulders. So now that all of a sudden 30 minutes, this whole wall pops off and the cameras come on this side and then the wall comes on that side. So when they shoot, it looks like we're looking out at Vegas and then they switch cameras again and this wall goes back up and the cameras go on this side and, and it's, you know, so they take everybody's side and then, you know, basically you shoot for four days and it turns into, you know, a four minute scene. You know, but I loved it. It's such a great show. The cast, unbelievable. They were all sweet to me. And, uh, and it was just one of those nice things that when I'm 80, I can look back and go, oh my God, yeah, I did do that show way back in the day, you know? And it's a great show. By the time you made it through 30 odd takes, had anybody else figured out how you were doing the tricks or no, they still didn't have a clue? Not really. You know, there's a couple of tricks they did know because after a while you just kind of go, wow, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. but the card trick, you know, cause I was doing sleight of hand. I, you know, I had to force, I think it was the queen of hearts, the king of dimes or whatever it was to the guy. So I, every time I did it, it had to be the same card, right? Because same takes and all that. Uh, and the same card in, in the uh, orange. But the nice thing too, is, you know, you have a prop master and we had a magic tech on, on the show as well. So it was great cause they'd reset everything for me, you know? So I, certain things I'd have to reset myself cause I'm really, picky about that. I want to make sure when I grab something, it's done right. So I kind of got to do it myself then I know, but other things they would reset. So our resets are really quick and, and um, a couple of tricks they, they still didn't know. And the last one, cause everything wasn't done in real time. There's no CGI or no nothing where I produced a business card in my wall that was lit on fire and lefty. My guest act in my show was like, 
I still don't know how you got that card out of the wallet that well lit and then you blew it out and there was it wasn't burnt or nothing. So and I know it wasn't CGI because I saw it and it's just it's just it's real. I said, Oh well, yeah, it was. I said that actually wasn't my trick. That was one of the pyro guys on set. He invented that kind of idea and he's uh, an amateur magician and he talked to me quickly and asked if I wanted to do it. And I said no at first because it wasn't I never done it before. And then I tried it a couple times and went, you know what, that's a really cool visual. Um, you know, because my idea was to have flash paper, it was paper that goes up quickly and produce a card, which I can do easily. Um, but I like the fact that that thing was lit and I blew it out and then it was clean. I just liked the whole look of it. So I, I quickly practiced it before the takes and then we kept it in. It, it makes me happy to know that lefty's not able to figure that out after seeing you do that and, and him being as close as you are. My, yeah. my only experience with trying to figure out a, a magician's trick was I had to MC a magic show at a casino in Regina and I was backstage prior to the show speaking with the magician and I watched his assistant climb into the box. Then I went out and watched the show. She came out of the box and I still couldn't figure out how he did it. And I watched her climb in the box. So <laughs> it makes me, it makes me feel better that, that lefty couldn't figure out how that worked for you. That, that makes me happy. <laughs> See, there you go. Check box for you there, Jeff. It's true though. In a lot of tricks, you know, if you're, if it's not in your wheelhouse, um, you, you can't figure out, or you have an idea, even though we're in the business, you know, I've been in the business forever. I'll see a trick and I'll have three ideas of how it's done. And one will be right, but the other two will be way off. And I don't know which one of the three it is. You know what I mean? Like, cause if it's not my idea or trick, I, you know, I just don't, sometimes, you, you know, if you haven't built it or designed it or do it, you just, you don't know how the hell the thing works, you know? Well, Murray, I just want to say a big thank you for taking the time to to sit and chat with us today. Uh, tell us your story and uh, talk about uh, the world of, of magic and the world of, of Las Vegas. Um, if people want to find you online, your social media, your YouTube, uh, how do they go about doing that? Uh, on YouTube, you can find me at Magic Murray. So it's YouTube.com uh, slash Magic Murray. On Facebook, it's Magic with Murray. Uh, on my website is murraymagic.com. So if you just put my name in there, Murray the Magician, on uh, Google, you will see everything come up. In a couple of weeks, we're doing a teacher trick on uh, Facebook as well as YouTube. So check me out there. We'll teach you a lot of fun tricks right here from my home in Las Vegas. Thanks so much, Murray. Thank you, buddy. Stay safe. Once again, you can find Murray online at murraymagic.com. And for tons of great videos, check out his YouTube channel and follow him on Instagram at Murray Sawchuck. Murray was also kind enough to do a few magic tricks for me during our video chat and show off some of his very cool vintage Vegas collection, including booths from the Dunes Hotel and light fixtures from Frank Sinatra's suite at the Riviera. If you want to see them for yourself, follow the links in the show notes to the Jeff Does Vegas YouTube channel. that wraps up yet another episode of the podcast if you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast please feel free to reach out to me via facebook twitter or instagram at jeff does vegas or you can also drop me an email directly at jeff at jeff in the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcast so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 58 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Podcast.